This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Oh, yeah. Learn just one thing. I can't wait for you all to hang with us today with uh, Coach Murray Voth. It's Carm Capriato, Remarkable Results Radio, my YouTube channel. Man, we interview coaches and technicians and shop owners. And uh, if you ever want to get a hold of me and maybe you have an idea, you want to come on Carm at RemarkableResults.biz. Murray Voth. Hey, man. Hi, Carm. How you doing today? I am great. RPM Training, rpmtraining.net. Good to have you here, my friend. Excellent. And that stands for Creating Results, Performance, and Mastery. I love that. So that's why I came up with that acronym. I love my acronyms. Hey, plan to be at Apex 2023, October 31st through November 2nd. Apex will build upon the incredible success of Joe's Garage, a full 10-bay working environment. If you earn your living in the auto service aftermarket, then Apex is for you. Hey, for over 30 years, Napa Tracks has made selecting the right shop management system easy by offering the best, most comprehensive SMS in the industry. We'll prove to you that Tracks is the single best shop management system in the business. Find Napa Tracks on the web at napatracs.com. Well, look at Murray and I. I can't remember, Murray, if we where we were. It could have been on a camp coach's call. It could have been on a camp Facebook. I don't know what it was, but I says, Murray, you got to come on and do a podcast with me on onboarding our people. And you said, great, Carm, I will. And then Murray sends me this email and he goes, I think we should really change the title of that. And he says, Carm, it should be, you would think that they would know that. And after I read his reasoning behind it, I said, oh, my God, he is 100% right. Because onboarding is something that you actually have to do. You just say, hey, welcome, uh, shake your hand, the coffee pot's here, have a blast. That's not what you do. Exactly. So for those of all of you listening, if there's a few of my current clients listening, and you might have a bit of a laugh, but in the context of RPM training mastermind groups, you are not allowed to say you would think they would know that because apparently I have this glare that I do. My kids talk about there's dad's glare. I raise one eyebrow and I do something with my forehead and I can't do it on purpose. And so group members have recognized this glare and it usually comes up when they say you think they would know that. And then I ask the question, so how would they have known that? Well, it's just common sense. And then I have to go into a diatribe about the difference between common sense and common knowledge because I actually researched this carm. And there is actually a difference. And us old guys always talk about, you think people, they don't have common sense. And, you know, sweeping, you know, using a broom is just common sense. And, and learning how to do that is just common sense. And, and just doing that is just common sense. And I no, you know what common sense is, Carm? I Googled it. Common sense is what an eight-year-old would understand to be true in our culture. Elephants do not drive cars is common sense. That's common sense. How to use a broom, we assume it's common knowledge, but it's not common knowledge. Because unless you've actually been handed a broom, shown how to hold it, shown the sweeping motion and how to move the dirt in one direction, you actually have to learn how to sweep. I was nine years old when I was handed my first broom and I swept the patio. So many shop owners are like, young people these days have no common sense. And I'm like, what you're talking about, owners, is common knowledge. And no, they don't. We have to, and again, I, I was talking about a specific skill that comes up and talk about apprentices and stuff, but back to onboarding, how would somebody know how to do something or how you do something? What are these assumptions as we as owners make? And I don't know if this came up the other day, Karm, but I talked about in a context, I talked about with a group of people, it may have been you, that we've all as employers had one, at least one wonderful employee. 
We've had that one employee that seems to get it from the day they show up. They seem to learn by osmosis. They seem to read your mind. They seem to do everything right. And they seem to just get it, right? Every business owner has had one of those persons in their career. And then what happens is because you've had that experience once, you think, oh, that's what I'm looking for. I need to hire. Oh, yeah, we did. That was in the context of that other podcast, a unicorn. So what we do is we hire unicorns as opposed to hiring a good person and then teaching them how to become that quote-unquote unicorn that we're looking for. Yeah, so you find a unicorn that's all-knowing, all-seeing. They just absorb things. They've been there and done that, so they get what you're trying to do. And if not, they observe and they figure it out. And we say, well, I didn't have to teach him a thing, and he got it, so why should I have to teach anyone else? Exactly. And that unicorn has wrecked us for the rest of our employees. That's right. Murray, I got to tell you, me and Ann, lately, we've been just looking at each other and says, where's the common sense in our world? And I think you finally broke the code because they have no common sense. Maybe they were never taught. Yeah. And I have had that because I had service stations for my whole career, Carm, and I had what I'm supposed to call gas attendant, not a gas jockey, because I was actually corrected by a peer my age at a meeting in spring. He said, they're not gas jockeys, but they don't ride the pumps. <laughs> oh my. And he said, it's a very unprofessional term. And, and in my whole career, I'm like, no, gas attendant, internal, whatever. Gas attendants. So I was actually, my wife and I actually raised several hundred young people, right? Like we taught people how to tie their shoes and how to get up in the morning and how to show up on time and how to. So I naturally, from that point, whenever I experience what I call lack of common sense, I gravitate to this person wasn't taught. Do you take credit for all that they know, the people that you raised? I do now. And their common sense came from Murray. Yes. Or from my wife. Or from the head technician that taught them, Earl. Or from Ryan, my other technician who taught them. So let's stop for a moment and let's use this episode, the learning that's coming from this. I mean, we're right out of the shoot. what? We're about seven or eight minutes in and we've already got probably landed in your lap. The fact that never, ever complain that someone doesn't have common sense. You need to step to the plate and teach it. And no matter what it is that you don't think that they know, you got to teach it or discuss it or mentor it or put your arm around somebody who says, I don't know whoever taught you that you used two feet to drive a car, one on the brake and one on the gas, but that's not how you do it. Right? Because nobody ever taught that person. Or somehow they taught were taught, but then got into a bad habit and were not re not shown again. And so to me, I Carm, I want to step back a little bit further with this is I come up with ideas that I think are original and then I find out that the seed was planted by somebody else usually. <laughs> and so I have to go circle back and give credit. So when I'm coaching and my clients you know, we talk about human motivation and trying to get my clients to make a change in the business. And they talk about getting their teams to make a change in the business. And I say, we're always looking for that employee to have the desire. We want them to desire to do their job, to desire to change. And so as I thought about stuff, I said, you know what? To have desire, you have to actually understand. You actually have to have the knowledge to do the task that you're being asked to do. Secondly, you need to be able to apply that knowledge. And I was working on an acronym for this. And then one day I was reading a book about Mr. W. William Edward Deming, one of my heroes. And I realized that in a different wording, in a different context, in a different way, he too was talking about. So I realized that I got that kind of idea from him in that way. Because generally, if you have knowledge and application and you've been asked to do something, most human beings will desire to do it. If you still have a desire issue after that, then I always call that a different management meeting. That means that that person might not be a good fit for your company, or maybe there's other issues going on in their personal lives, or maybe there's something else that we need to deal with. But generally in general, and here's the other analogy I use. Carm, 
Have you ever watched a baby learn how to walk? I have. How many times do they fall before they walk? <laughs> we don't. Thousands. Right. Do they keep trying? Yes. Yeah. So here's the thing. Human beings are born wanting to learn and will fall and will fall and will fall until they learn it. Aside from a neurological learning disability or a physical disability, all of us are walking and we don't remember learning how to walk, but we fell in our butts over and banged ourselves on the coffee table over and over again, yet we still did it. Why is it then when people become 17 and 18 and 22 and 50 and 60, that they give up when they bump into something, that they scream when they bump into the coffee table, or they they say, oh, I can't learn that because it's just impossible to learn that. And here's my opinion. This is, you know, and again, I guess people can block me out if they don't want to hear my opinion, but I think some of our modern school system and some of our parenting in the last 50 years, beats that out of young people, beats that out of the kid, that natural curiosity, that natural ability to want to learn. So I always approach coaching and employees, assuming that I will be able to get them to do what they need to do until they show me otherwise by, again, a psychological disability, a physical disability, or some other thing that gets in their way, right? So my assumption is always that that we can do better. Now, I'm not talking about the impossible. I'm not jumping out of an airplane with a parachute on my back car. I'm never. That's not a thing. Could I physically do that? Yes, I could psychologically. I maybe could black myself out or do it, but I'm not going to do that. I'm a granddad now. I'm not going to risk an accident at this point, right? Am I asking, but as a shop owner, asking a, a new apprentice to do something or a service advisor to do something or whatever, I believe people can change, If but we have to give them the reason to, and we have to give them the knowledge. I know I got off in the weeds here a little bit, so I should circle back to you. No, you, you didn't get off in the weeds. You engaged me just like you should have. And it seems that if we were born to learn, let's, let's just use the baby analogy. Let's go into business. Shop owners want and need to teach. If the person is always wanting to learn, And they gave up on that a little while. They're in their basements playing video games and they don't have any common sense about life once they need to get out there. Then our job, no matter how seasoned, how veteran that person that you just hired, your responsibility as a shop owner with processes and systems in play, you need to say, ah, someone new to teach. And if they get it, great, next topic, okay? And there are ways to assess and affirm that this individual will fit. They know our rules. They have rules. This is great. They have morals and principles. And all that stuff happens. You just can't check the box. Just hired another tech. Took three months to do it. Now I need to take a vacation from thinking about this person. Yeah. I have mentioned this in, in, in other contexts, but I, I did my commercial pilot's license when I was young. That was a career that I wanted to do back in the early 80s. But of course, economic times were such that there was just no jobs and I had to move on. But I, I have a story from an experience with a flight instructor. I had a regular instructor. This is in the early part of my first hours. And there's a, a thing called a steep turn where you, you turn the airplane quite steeply on its side and you go in a circle. Well, Aerodynamics means that the nose is going to go down unless you actually pull back on the controls and add more power. Well, I kept struggling in steep turns and I could never seem to get it with my initial instructor. No criticism against that instructor per se. I get a substitute. His name was Rick. And we get in the plane, do the checklist, take off. We get over to the practice area and Rick says, hey, Murray, anything you're having trouble with? I'm like, yeah, steep turns. I suck. He says, show me. So I showed him. He said, Murray, remember the trim wheel? I'm like, Oh, right. 
pulled it back, put the trim wheel on, takes the pressure off the controls. And we literally, it was a calm day. We were literally in a steep turn with our arms crossed in an airplane, watching ourselves go in circles. You should have seen the smile on my face, Carl. Like it was this aha moment. He said, ask me, what am I having trouble with? He said, show me. And then he said, hey, let me just give you a hint. So when I coach now, and and then just put a plug in for Zoom coaching, okay? I still have a few people have circled back to me, Murray, when are you going back to live groups? I'm like, never. I says, for two reasons. One, I like my house. I like my bed. I don't have to travel anymore. I said, secondly, well, yeah, but I missed the networking. I said, network, figure it out. Go network. Like you have friends and neighbors in your town, go network, like whatever, right? Or go to the different training conventions and network. I said, but when we started using Zoom, and I was already using it a little bit before the pandemic already, and I had somebody was having a challenge with something. I said, show me, share your screen with me. And I would ask questions. And I would even get them to show me things that I actually don't even know how to work. Like their shop management system. I'm asking them to report a particular number, a certain KPI firm for our coaching, right? And they said, I can't find it in my software. I said, so show me. I've never seen this software before in my life. And all I do is I say, so where would you look for these numbers normally? I said, well, how about clicking on that button over there? I'm a button clicker when it comes to software, <laughs> right? Try it. What are you going to do? Break it? I mean, you're not in an airplane at 50,000 feet. So what's, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You just turn the whole thing off, right? And it's like, oh, that's where that number is. So Carm, the sharing of screens today has ramped up my coaching practice a thousandfold, how fast people are learning things because we can now visually share, whether it's software, QuickBooks, a diagram, an inspection, a job description. I have a, on, on my screen here, in case we get to it, I have an onboarding timeline <laughs> that I've developed in conjunction with some shop owners there. And so what I'm saying is, is I truly believe that when a human being understands what you're asking of them, you give them the knowledge, how to apply the knowledge, build the why in there, generally... of the time, you're going to get them on board, on boarding, on board with what you're trying to do. Murray, I love your story about having the substitute teacher sit down with you and ask you this very simple question, anything you're having trouble with, and you explain it. He watched, he observed, he told you just a very few things. If we're teaching someone as shop owners or individuals, it just doesn't matter. And we see that it's just not getting through and the same mistakes are being made. Why? We don't need to be that sole person in charge, that person with the ego that says, I taught him everything he knows and I'm not giving up until he finally learns it. You've got to go to plan B if there's a plan B. Ask someone else or totally sit down with the individual and say, give me it from A to Z. Walk it back with me. There are other ways if you can't practically get it done in the real world. To your point, I love it. And here's an example from my days with the shop. I was away at a meeting and came back and there's a technician near tears. We had asked him to change a light bulb and it wasn't the bulb, it was wiring. And I show up and there's like half the fenders apart. And the other guys were swamped. I forget why they, they had abandoned him, but he was near tears. He had his Canadian license. He had his air care, which was our emissions testing certification. He had what he needed in terms of on paper. He was a good worker. He loved transmissions and clutches and stuff, which was wonderful because the other guys hated them. And then, so I took him aside and I said, hey, dude, like, what's going on? And he said, please don't make me diagnose electrical again, <laughs> ever. I said, okay, okay. So we talked about his strengths. We talked about his area there. I said, so do you want me to send you for training? He said, no. I said, but you know that your pay is going to get sort of capped as we grow. The other guys will get grow a little faster than you. I said, obviously, you'll get raises in time as the company, you know, inflation and stuff like that. And he said, no. He says, just give me all that hard stuff. He said, I love. And he would just love dropping transmissions and engines and clutches and singing. And so we found his spot. 
didn't make him, he, he wasn't willing to, for whatever reason, I didn't, that was, you know, life was busy at the time. I didn't do a deep dive into why he didn't want to go into electrical. And there's a chance that he had a missing gap of information. And Carm, I'm going to use another analogy of music. I taught myself to play guitar when I was 14. I grew up singing in our home, sang in choirs in early years in college. I was in a band. Uh, I had a band with my brothers, taught myself how to play bass. I took piano lessons as a kid. I can't remember now. I think I have a psychological issue with the music <laughs> that my mom made me practice. But anyways, we sent our son for piano lessons. This is years ago. And his instructor said, hey, we have a parents' night where, where you bring your instrument and you play with your kit. And I brought my bass and I'm joining along. He's a jazz, it was jazz, it was all jazz stuff, right? You know, fly me to the moon, you know, all that great stuff. And he looks at me and he said, Murray, he said, how long have you played? And I says, well, you know, self-taught. He said, let me show you something. So he showed me the key of C, the bass pattern, and then the F sharp pattern. And he said, here's the pattern for jazz. Here's the blues pattern. Here's the rock pattern. And Carm, literally, if you tell me the key of the song now, I can take what? This was in my 50s. I could you tell me it's the key of C. I know the rock pattern or the country western pattern, or I know the blues pattern on a bass guitar. It's all pattern. I don't have to memorize Stairway to Heaven. I can just get the key and I play the pattern along and I can generally, the audience would never know maybe that I didn't play it exactly like Mark Knopfler, but you know what I'm saying. And so what I'm saying is, Carm, is I don't care how old we are. Sometimes we've been missed something. I missed the pattern. My mother was a very rote teacher memorize the song, right? Which of course got very boring as a kid. Once you show me the pattern, my wife, I'll be humming along to a song. She says, do you know the song? I said, I've never heard it before. She says, how do you do that? I said, Faust, his name was Faust, believe it or not. This piano teacher taught me. I listened for the pattern. I can hum along with almost any song now. And then once I know the words, I can sing it. Anyways, these are just examples to inspire, to inspire our audience that we can help people, man. Hey, Carm here. And remember, if you earn your living in the automotive aftermarket, then Apex is for you. And I've got great news. Registration for Apex 2023 is open and there's an early bird deal until June 2023. Register for only $40. The very special space inside Apex is Joe's Garage and it's growing strong with special displays from our industry's best companies. You'll find working bays with the latest in equipment and tools. And Apex just finalized the training schedule for owners, technicians, and service advisors. Apex will have the industry's top class and trainers in a new setting this year. Each year, the classes sell out. So get signed up at aapexshow.com. And a highlighted Apex is meeting top industry execs ready to talk with you about your business needs, parts, programs, and tools. Also plan on spending time in the garage with the 10 working bays and the latest diagnostic tools, shop management systems, tire servicing, and demonstrations from the best tool and equipment companies. So plan to be at Apex 2023, October 31st through November 2nd. Head to aapexshow.com and I'll see you there. Let's face it, your shop management system is the single most important tool in your shop, period. Napa Tracks was built from the ground up to make your business more profitable and efficient. We provide an extensive set of tools to increase and track profitability in real time. Napa Tracks offers the industry's best post-sale support, hands down, and we train your people on-site. Yep, on-site. And we offer remote refresher training 10 times a week, and customer support is open six days a week. Give us a call, visit the website, or join our Facebook community today to learn more. We'll prove to you that Trax is the single best shop management system in the business. 
Napa Tracks is always customized and tailored for you, whether you're a one-man shop or a large multi-bay or multi-location company. After all, it's your shop. So, it's your choice. Visit us on the web at NapaTracks, that's N-A-P-A-T-R-A-C-S, dot com. A couple crazy thoughts going through my mind. Yeah, I learned to play the piano years ago, and it was because we had a player piano, and my mom said, I am so regretful that I was able to convince my mom to let me quit playing piano. Because I want to play the piano. I mean, do you ever go to a conference and all of a sudden you're in a bar or a lounge on a cruise ship, there's a piano and you just said, oh, damn it. I, I just, and I really, I love music and I love to hear the piano in music. So I'm pissed, so pissed that my mom had a weak moment. And she goes, stop this. Fine, you could quit. I'll never forget the one of the first songs that I was ever taught was the Volga Boatman. I don't know why I ever remember that thing, but I do, and I don't know the reason for it, if it was the two hands or whatever. What you're saying is be a perpetual student. Always be thirsty to learn something. Murray, probably back in the day, no one could have taught you how to play, you know, what those keys of C now. But hey, you had nothing to lose. You'd say, hey, yeah, fine. There's an openness to learning that we all have to be in. And that Right there, Carm, is as an owner of a business listening to this, we need to develop that openness to learning and want to learn. And then we need to then be able to teach other people to learn. That was one thing I will give my dad credit with. He was a very curious person and I was very curious for that. He encouraged curiosity and learning and things like that. And I meet people my age, my peers who stopped learning in when they in the 12th grade or they stopped learning when they got their license or they stopped learning or they think that they stopped learning. I'm like, but are you not curious about, you know, like Wikipedia and Google are my best friends. Like my dad bought me this, you know, World Book Encyclopedia and I began to read them cover to cover. Yeah, I'm a nerd in disguise, but I always want to know how things work. And the thing is, I believe with some human beings, we can get them to understand that learning is good, that it's good to ask questions because chances are they got shut down at home. Just shut up and do what I tell you, right, by their parents. Or they had a bad experience with a teacher in a school where they got a perception of asking a question or being curious was seen as being impertinent or being, I was always in the principal's office, always, almost every grade for talking too much. So wait a minute, went to the principal's office because you were talking too much because you were sitting in class talking to the person to your left or right, asking them a question or teaching them what you knew? Combination of all of it. You were always on fire. You were always what, going 110? Well, not quite, but it was just, it was just, I mean, there's a social aspect to my personality and the, and the next to too. So, but it was generally, you know, we weren't necessarily talking about the hockey game, but we were talking about stuff that was going on in the class and the stuff, right? My kids saw my report cards years, this is years ago when they're in their teens, they're all in their thirties now. And they were teasing me about every single one said, Murray, talk too much. And I says, yeah, I make a lot of money doing that now, kids. So just be quiet. <laughs> So it was sixth grade and there was too much noise going on in the hallways as they were moving us down to the basement to go have lunch at the cafeteria. And so there's no talking in the halls. Strict, strict, strict. So that we're in line and the individual in front of me turns around and says, what's for lunch? And I said, I don't know. I got flagged for talking in the hall. My punishment was I had a right. This was a Friday. I had to write 1,000 times, I will not talk in the corridor. I had no idea what a corridor was. 
<laughs> and you wrote it a thousand times. And I wrote it a thousand times. It was my birthday the next day. So in Carm Capriato fashion, got the project done. I actually got some help, but I won't explain how that worked. And I went to the drugstore, walked a couple of blocks to a drugstore with, what, 50 cents in my pocket, and I bought a thank you card. I had this big manila envelope with all the sheets in it, the thousand times I will not talk in the corridor. I gave it to my teacher. In it was the thank you card, and I said, thank you so much. I'll never, ever forget my birthday gift on this wonderful weekend. And that teacher ended up becoming the board of my daughter Tracy's school. And when we would go to fundraisers at the school, she was there. And so she said, hey, Carm, come over here. You know, here I am, you know, in my, in my 40s or 50s. I don't remember. She says, come over here and tell everyone the story of the thousand times I had you write something. So it ended up becoming a memory I'll never forget. But anyway, I, I wasn't that much of a talker, Murray, but it was my story that you prompted me to think about. Never told that. <laughs> and you know what? Your Boatman of the Volga? Yeah. I haven't thought about that for 60 years. I can see the title of that song really? in my Really? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. I can't believe it. I thought it was just me. It's real. How cool. So, listen, we're on onboarding, an episode on onboarding, and Murray and I have gone to so many interesting places. Bass guitar, punishment, thousand times, and all this neat stuff. Thank you for bearing with us. I think the learning lessons from here are incredible. Let's keep going. Well, let's go a bit specific here. And I've been working on an onboarding document with a couple of group members that, I, that I'm, I'll give some hints here. And if people want a copy of it, they can reach out to us. It's nothing super fancy. It's a work in progress. Murray Voth, M-U-R-R-A-Y-V-O-T-H at rpmtraining.net. Perfect. Just reach out and I'll send you a copy of this. The reason why it is an outline and it's not a full document, and because every shop is going to be different. If I gave you one for this guy's, it won't match this, you know, this one's, right? But conceptually, you know, we want to do that. Now, the, the term onboarding, I remember hearing it, I forget how long ago, but let's just say 12 years ago or some kind of time frame. I'm like, huh? Onboarding? What? Oh, what? orientation, right? Back in the day, they used to teach orientation, right? And I think somebody in HR said, well, we're bringing them on board, right? We should probably give them some onboarding skills here to, to do their job. And so I'm going to get a little facetious here momentarily because I just changed the first line of this orientation just before the podcast started because I've been working with a couple of human resources professionals with my clients. In other words, when I run out of, hey, this is beyond Murray's scope of legalism, we bring in for the professionals and done some internal webinars, like just with my clients, with a professional. Sophia, again, HR laws are different in different countries of Canada, the United States, different states, things like that. However, we have been learning something called an employment contract or a job offer letter that needs to be signed between the employer and the employee. And also that we actually need to let the employee know, even though it's standard practice and it's everybody you think, every, you would think they would know this. We have to let them know that they are in a probationary period for 90 days. This is in Canada for, you know, for sure. I don't know if states probation probably lines up fairly similarly, but we actually have to get them to acknowledge in writing that they are on probation because there's been people who have sued. They, oh, no, no, you've told me I was on probation. And so they sued for severance after three months of working and got money, right? Because they, they found a loophole, right? Now, here's the thing. 
99% of employees, whatever, 95% are decent, never have a problem. 4% don't know their rights and we get away with stuff. And then 1% know their rights and that's where we get into trouble, right? So hence all this legalese. So the first line is before you, you know, their first day on the job, the first thing that happens is they sign all documentation related to HR. That's the first thing that has to happen. Because if you do the first few things, like I go tell noon, they've already been working for four hours. And now you get them to sign the documentation at one o'clock after lunch. They actually became employed without a contract. And now you impose the new contract on them. This is extremely specific. So because people are, I don't want to give the wrong impression to people. If this applies to your jurisdiction, you got to do it this way. So this is all Canadians listening. You got to do this. Yeah, you know what? It doesn't sound like it's a bad idea, no matter where you're from. Exactly. We're on the same page. Now, let's go away from the legal stuff, okay? Basic shop tour and overview allow introductions to all the other team members. Introduction to the company, introduction to the company structure. Depending on how large you are, how small you are, the bookkeeper might not be in the office that day. So maybe mention that there's a bookkeeper or maybe mention that your partner, your spouse is a partner in the business, but only works there part-time, right? Review the company purpose, the core value documents. Review your mission statement, your vision statement, i.e. your company philosophy. I have one that I, I teach my clients called the eight commitments of automotive consultation. This is a commitment that we make to the motorist, right? In terms of how we deal with them and deal with their vehicles. Then we talk about basic expectations, goals, general, personal, professionalism, engaging with the client, engaging with team members, talking about, and I've actually got this written in here, talking about the ability to learn and begin to ask questions of this person. What are their experiences? Then you review pay structures, including time card usage, stat holidays, overtime, paydays, set up the person in payworks or whatever. If you use a company like that, of course, I mentioned the job offer letter there. Get their sizes, order the uniforms. Now, I use a term called a positional agreement that I've kind of grabbed from Michael Berger, Gerber's book, The E-Myth Revisited. He uses the term positional contract in his book, but I changed it to the word agreement to separate it from the legal contract, employment contract that our jurisdictions require us to have, right? So the positional agreement is something that you've actually created prior to hiring anybody. This is what this position agrees to do. And this is what we agree to pay that position. So Carm, I'm hiring you to fill a position. I'm not hiring you. Your worth is not determined by you. Your worth is determined whether you fill this position. Now, I'm not trying to devalue you as a human, or but I'm trying to actually empower you to say, hey, this is the position that we're trying to fill here. And these are the duties, responsibilities of that position. Would you like to engage in that position? Perfect. Great. And then that's how we hold people accountable. Hello. Hello. This is your job. Right? Now, I'm only partway through a few hours of the first day, and here's questions to ask our listeners. Could you introduce a new employee to your company? Do you have a company structure? Do you have an org chart? Do you have a company purpose written down? I don't care what it is. Have you actually even tried and brainstormed? Do you have your core values written down or have you discussed them at all? So, Carm, as you can see, good onboarding means we have to have a whole ton of our own stuff in line and ready to go before we can actually bring somebody on it and have a powerful person. So imagine the power that this document does just to owners to get themselves to go over this for themselves. What right? a healthy start. Think of that, a healthy start. Thank you, Carm. I love that. I'm actually going to write that down. <laughs>
Anytime, Murray. And I'm always inspired. My guests come on and I'm listening so intently. And I just wrote down the words, what a healthy Saturday reminded me of, they always say, you know, I have a breakfast, you know, first thing in the morning. It's it's such an important thing. It's a healthy start to a long-term hopeful relationship with an employee, a healthy start. Well, I'm going to just keep flowing here a little bit. We've got employee handbook. We talked about the probationary period. Well, we talked about benefits, vacation policy, the lunch and the break policy, employee discounts, parts purchase policy. This is a big one. A shoppies policy. I follow different conversations on social media between shop owners and, and techs and or whatever. And they talk about, you know, what's your policy on this? Or I had this technician think he could do this or whatever. And I'm kind of like, my question in all these, I don't put them in because I know I'll get kicked out. My question is, is did you have a policy <laughs> or did you? And again, you know what? Let's not default to the word policy, Carmen, because that's very impersonal. Did you talk to the person about your expectations, about the privilege of it is to use your shop? Yeah, but it's still, it's an agreement. I love the word agreement. It's an agreement. You will under these circumstances. Right. So for example, let me just walk through a few ideas for people listening. Do you have a shop use policy? Who is allowed to use the shop, the lifts, the equipment, right? Do you have a working alone policy or does somebody else have to be there? Depending on your workman's compensation coverage, you cannot work by yourself With a lift, there has to be somebody else in the building nearby in case there's a failure of that lift. What happens if a technician can work on their own car and maybe their wife's car and maybe their kid's car, but can they work on their grandparents' car, their uncle's and aunt's car? Or what happens if a service advisor who doesn't know how to work on cars, well, what what benefit do they get? So what is your policy there? One of my head technicians, we had some life goes in cycles, Carmen. We were talking about it before the podcast and we went through a glorious time of about 10, 12 years. Earl was this great shop foreman for me and stuff. And he helped me create the shop use policy. And he said, guys, you know, you're using shop air after hours. You're using electricity. In the wintertime, you're using heat. You're using the hand cleaner. You guys are using spritzes and scratches of different cans of aerosols throughout your service. And none of this is being paid for. And Murray and the company are covering that for us. He said, we should, every session, we should put $5 into, you know, pay Murray for that. And I said, Earl, I just love the idea. I said, but you know what, let's do that. Let's do the five dollars. Said, well, let's put that into a, a lunch fund. So I gave it back. I said, guys, here's lunch. Like you know, Fridays we'll go, we'll do lunch or build barbecue or whatever. So we we work together on that whole piece. But the idea was is we were very clear on employee discounts, who got to use the shop, which family members could be there, who could hang around, who couldn't hang around, no alcohol present, on and on and on. But the thing is, is we did it by conversation and developed a policy because we talked about the positive benefits of this happening, right? And you all know what happens when an owner, and again, an owner and a couple of technicians and their buddies stand around drinking beers after hours and some of the silliness that can ensue. And next thing you know, we have a workman's compensation claim that gets very muddy and very complicated. And who was actually present and that, 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 that kind of stuff like that. Murray, so, I need your opinion on something. So this is great for onboarding. I get that. But you stop to realize I do have a work in the shop policy, but I need to update it. And there's four or five new things that we need to put in it, take up a couple of old ones out. Do we go around the entire shop, have a meeting, present this new, get a new signature? Give me your take on that. This is a challenging conversation, Carm, that some of us know how to navigate well for whatever reason and some of us are challenged with it. So in other words, we're trying to impose a new set of rules and regulations, but we want them to contribute to the new regulations 
And sometimes owners will say, well, I want to make it their idea so that they buy in, right? And it, it sounds like a bit of manipulation at some point when you talk about it that way. And so we don't want to be authoritarian. We don't want to be laissez-faire, loosey-goosey, because lives are at stake and safety and money and stuff like that, right? And so it's finding that line. So I think it's, and, and I'm glad you asked me this question because I haven't thought about this for a while. And it challenges me to think about how I think. And my position is, is that we present the challenge or the situation. Let's use the word situation. It's not a challenge, it's a situation. The situation is such is that here is our old shop use policy. I, as the manager or the owner, have been made aware of some new workman's compensation rules, or I've been made aware of some, some incidents that have happened in other shops. And I'd really like to bring to you that we need to update this document. And before I give you my two cents about what needs to happen and what the, the legal people say need to happen, you know, I want to hear from you guys what you think about how safe do you feel here? How do you feel about how the equipment's being used and stuff like that? And get that. And this has to come from a place of sincerity, right? That you literally care about what they think. And then they will come back at you and they will say, I hate coming to work and the oil drains are full. I hate coming to work and the transmission flusher hasn't been empty. I hate going to the shop supply shelf and I have to open up a new case of, of brake clean and it, you know, it interrupts my flow of my day because now I'm digging around for brake clean and, and all the brake clean was used up on the weekend or in the evening before. And so when you get people realizing that their behavior affects other people and next thing you know, they're all on board with the policy because, hey, none of us wants to start the day paid day, the day that we're supposed to be rocking and rolling with a full oil drain, right? And so then we get them onboarded. Again, there's that term again. We get them to buy in by them presenting what they think, how they feel safe and what frustrates them. And then we could bring in our legal stuff or the policy stuff that has to be a bit firmer. And the stuff that is, there's the must have and then there's the nice to have. Then the nice to have, we negotiate the wording and we negotiate the what's good for the shop, right? And work that way. We get a new policy, then everybody signs in, it goes into the, uh, employment folder. Yeah. Exactly. Once it's done, everybody acknowledges that they've read it, they've signed it, and then away we go, right? This might sound like manipulation, Carm, and, and maybe at the end of the day, we as humans are always manipulating each other. <laughs> That's just the human experience. I don't want to, this is sound negative, but we what we need to do is we need to have the documentation because we're a modern society and the documentation protects us, right? It protects us from the authorities, protects us from liabilities, and it, you know, it, it's, it creates a safety net and stuff like that. But there's the spirit of law and then there's the intent of the law, right? And, and that kind of stuff like that. And so what I like to do is talk about using peer pressure in a positive way to import, enforce the policies. So if I show up for work as an owner, say, for example, and for whatever reason, I'm aware that the oil drain is full and hasn't been emptied, right? I could walk up to you and say, Carm, you're my tech and say, hey, Carm, were you working on your car last night? Well, yeah. Well, Carm, you know the rules. You should have had that oil drain. Because look at now, you know, now we're starting off the day. You broke the policy. And you're like, blah, 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 blah. as opposed to, hey, Carm, you know, we talked about the oil drains. And the effect that that'll have on, on your teammates. How does it feel? And then what you do is you remember something that irritated Carm. Hey, Carm, remember when you came into work that day and the, uh, the eight gauge green wire was empty and nobody had ordered it and you were stomping your feet about where, who ordered it? Where's I get? I says, yeah, how did that feel when I didn't do my job? Cause maybe that, that was my job to order the, the, the wire, right? And you're like, Carm. I'm really apologize for that day that I screwed up on that order on that wire and how I frustrated you. But can you see how leaving the oil drain full would frustrate Stu Susan over there or Stuart over there? You need to get people to connect to the human dynamic of who they're working with. We have policies for the legal liability and to document, 
But we should look at the intent of the policy, which is the working together piece. The intents of all those shop policies are production and safety, cohesiveness. There's so many intangibles. You know, when you want to go to the rack and there's no spiffy spool of wire there and you're ready to do some really some heavy diag and you want to do some jump wires. Now you just lost yourself a half to 45 minutes, depending on who's got to go out and get it. It needs to be ordered. There needs to be, of course, work assignments as to who really is in charge of doing all of these jobs. It's, in fact, I'm sure that there's got to be a chart up on the wall that says, you know, today I do the oil. I mean, maybe every production apprentice's job is at the end of the day to do that. Carm, my gas jockeys had morning checklist that was over 20 points on a spreadsheet. My evening gas jockeys had a 25-point checklist. When it was busy on the fuel and they skipped a couple steps, I understood that. And, you know, we made it, we acknowledged that, hey, it was price of gas was low today and you guys were slammed. But on a day that it was quiet, I want that list done. And if you were standing around after, I was okay with that. I don't care. There's no cars to pump gas. There's nothing. You've got your list done. You're good. You can chat with your coworker. And the onboarding document basically explains that there are these duties that uh, you need to perform based on the assignment that you get uh, from the checklist on the wall. I mean, it's that simple. Here's another story. Uh, gathering with some family members, one family, extended family member, hippie wannabes, they're casual with their children, you know, everything is just loosey-goosey, go with the flow, we're just hanging, and of course the kids are running around and food's getting spilled and you can't visit because, you know, the kids is all distracting. So I quietly took all the children, including ours, went over to another area, I set a table, got all the food out on the table, served all the children, and everything was all the chaos was now under control and the visiting over the adult section was smoothed out. Everything was going. And one of these loosey goosey hippie types went, well, this is so nice. <laughs> and I'm like, there's a reason for structure. There's a reason for rules. There's a reason for societal norms that have evolved over time for calmness and peacefulness and great adult visiting. And guess what? The kids are being nourished. They're having a good time over at their own little table. It's a human thing, man. It's not just business. It's a human thing. We as human beings need structure. Yeah. And you made it happen. You took the action to make it happen. The other people you're explaining to me, they're non-actionable people. Life just happens around them without any structure. Yeah. Yeah. So now think about, you have a technician acting out, stomping their feet, swearing, dropping tools. Let's not assume. Wait a minute. Wait, well, Murray, we're a professional industry. That doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it used to. <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying? Maybe they're not quite stomping their feet, but somebody's gotten really out of sorts, right? And they're beginning to muck up the day for everybody else. Well, believe it or not, we're just little people in big bodies. And maybe that technician feels out of control. I'm not endorsing bad behavior. I'm not endorsing cussing. I'm not endorsing throwing tools. I'm not endorsing any of that. But what I'm saying is, is that something happened of the structure of that day and that technician, something happened. It was a, a post on Facebook. And again, I don't remember the names. I hope I'm not going to be insulting anybody saying this, but a technician posted customer car booked in, brought their own parts, which involved pressing bushings into control arms for a collector's car. So it was like a 69 something Chevy of some sort. And the picture of the control arms and the, the work that this technician was doing However, the parking lot is full of stuff that was sold a week ago that we haven't got to yet. And of course, there's the commentary going down about who, who allowed that to happen. So I'm thinking to myself, when technicians get frustrated, 
there's usually, if they're smart professional people, if they're getting frustrated, something's happened. Who let this customer? So I bet you, I bet you anything, that was the owner's golfing buddy that slipped into the cracks, right? Don't know the name of the shop, don't know the name of the tech. I just remember seeing a picture of these control arms on his workbench and this com. And the commentary was not whiny. It was just stated. I don't understand why when all that work out there is being booked and customer supplied parts. So now as a coach, I'm looking at, okay, I just saw about 100 gross profit dollars per hour disappear because of customer supplied parts. So I don't care if that's the golfing, but you just shot yourself from a foot owner and or service advisor by allowing that to happen. Murray, all I can think about is pay plans, modified salaries, flat rate, all that stuff comes into the complication of moving that job to front and center and not at the end of the day and, and all that stuff. Because we tell a customer this vehicle is going to be done um, unless we have called them ahead of time to tell them it's going to be another day. You're putting the whole trusted relationship on the line. But I know we're talking about onboarding, but to your point, you're talking about policy here and why it's so important that we need to teach our people how it all works. I see all these PayPal conversations online and I lose my patience. I says, you're asking the wrong question. You're talking about the wrong topic. This is very simple. Aside from money, no money involved, what's the best way to look after a vehicle? Okay, that can be discussed till the cows come home. Technicians aren't all going to agree. So just let me imply what I'm talking about. The best way for us is to make a car last a long time and save them on depreciation of buying a new car, right? So that means that we're maintaining a car the best way. So what's the best way to look after a car? Now, primarily, what's the best way to look after a client? Not from our point of view, from their point of view. What is a client looking for in their experience of car service and car repair, right? Then, what is the best way to look after an employee in general? Now, never mind the pay plan. We're talking about onboarding. We're talking about communication. We're talking about team meetings. We're talking about all these different things that are part of it. Do you have a clear position agreement for each position in your company that's clear in terms of expectations? Have you done the math on what that position will get paid for those outcomes? Do you have a business model? Again, what is the most important way to run your business? Understanding gross profit, understanding these different pieces. And then what you do, Carm, this is the hard part. This is where I come in, is you blend the best way to serve a client, the best way to look after a car, the best way to look after an employee, the best way to run a business, and you'll get the pay plan. It doesn't matter. But here's what we've done. Pay plans are owners abdicating their responsibility for employee performance. We have blamed people for their financial problems when in general, yes, there's lazy people. Yes, there's people who get who rack up credit card debt in, in Edvernet. Now I'm going off into economics now. But at the end of the day, Carm, we have taken the responsibility of an owner of a business. We've abdicated all of it and we've made flat rate because that's the lazy person's way to run a business. Now, do I believe in an incentive or a participatory pay or benefits for going above and beyond? Of course, I believe that there should be something built into play. But I believe that we should give people a reason to do their job beyond the money. Now, am I idealistic and optimistic? Yes, Carm, but am I seeing it? Yes, I see it. And again, the research shows over and over and over again, when Fortune 500 companies do what I just talked about, of course, they use much more complicated terminology than I do. They are generally more profitable than the other ones, but they most of the stock exchange defaults to short, sweet, quick, quarterly things. And so we get back to incentive-based pay and all that kind of garbage. Long-term depth of business and financial economy and creating wealth comes from the things we just talked about, in my opinion. Okay. You're going to come back and do an episode on those five items? Sure. <laughs>
customer, employee, what's the best for? And then we can filter it all down, actually put it in a grinder and spin it, and there's your answers. I'm not making it sound too simple, Murray, but to your point, there are so many things to consider, so many factors to consider it. And I love your approach. It it blends everything that's critically important to running a great business. But here's the thing, and maybe this is just how my brain works. When I understand the five fundamental things, the rest is details that I just had that are fun. I just do them. When you understand the fundamentals, the rest figures itself out. Yes, it's hard work. It's complex. And there's lots, lots of moving pieces to it. But if you understand the fundamentals, that's like watching a crackerjack troubleshooter technician looking at a car is they've approached it not from the fact that my 2017 Hyundai Santa Fe has a check engine light and is doing this. Yeah, they've got the information of what the client's concern is. They understand electricity. They understand hydrocarbons. They understand the physics of the issue. And so they hone in on the problem in 10 seconds or 15 seconds because they understand the basic conceptual process. My other guy that I talked about that ended up doing all the heavy work at our shop and didn't want to do diagnosis, I think what he was missing was basic electricity. Just like my music patterns, he was missing the basic patterns of internal combustion engine, right? When you understand the basic things about that same in business, the rest of it irons itself out. And so then what ends up happening is the policies come along to enforce it or to, I hate that word, to protect it. But let's, let's use the example of customer supplied, client supplied parts, which is a common topic, but it's easy. It's on the tip of my tongue. Hey, Carm, I understand that you want to bring your own parts. Is there a reason why you think you want to bring your own parts? The first thing I do is I ask you why. Well, I thought I could save some money if I brought my own parts. So then we go down that well, Carm, and at the end of the day, if I supply the parts, it comes with a two-year warranty, it comes with this, it comes with that. You know, for a $90 difference or $100 difference, do you really think it's worth your time and money to go buy that part and deal with that situation? Or, Carm, you might say, well, you know what? My granddad looked at my car, he's a retired mechanic, and he saw that it needed all this stuff, and he bought me all these parts for my birthday, and he said, you know, some shops will actually do the work if you bring your own parts. So now I have a different emotional conversation. Hey, Carm. I appreciate the generosity of your grandfather helping all these parts, but you got to under. And then I walked them through why we don't do it, right? But at our shop, we don't do that. We have a pollster in our town here, and maybe this came up in another podcast, but a year and a half ago, we took an ottoman in to be a pollster. He said, sure, leave it with me. I, I we had our own fabric because we were matching something. And he says, I'll get to it when I get to it. I'm all by myself or I do the phones. I do everything. I can't find help. And so four months later, we got our ottoman back. We drive by there a few weeks ago and I see new signage and I see, looks like it's more organized, but we now need a chair upholstered. We go in there and there's a woman working there and I, I believe it's his wife and he now has an apprentice. So now he's working on cars, he's working on furniture. And I said, we have this chair in the back, in the back of our place. We have the fabric along. Could we leave it with you? We understand that you're busy and there's no rush. And she said, actually, no. If we actually did that, our showroom would completely be full. Would you, if we would like you to do is take pictures of the, of the chair, pictures of the fabric, send that to us. We'll do an estimate. You send us a deposit. And then we will email you when you could bring in the chair. But Karn, she did it in such a way that I didn't feel offended. She told me how it works. And I bet you that family is making three times the money that they did before when he was trying to do everything himself. So Karn, they gave me their policy. Yeah, made you the center of the decision. They knew how important it was to you. Everything that they said was about making Murray happy. Yeah, even though I had to follow a set of ways to make me happy. To make me happy, right. 
You don't do the job if they bring the parts, and if not, you let them down nice and easy. You want them to come back someday when they have a legitimate issue, and you just want them to respect your decision and your policies, and for all the right reasons. I don't think it's a hard sell today in our crazy world. I don't think it's a hard sell. And the other thing that I think shop owners get hurt by, they get hurt and they get mad, is there is a tiny segment of the driving public, a tiny segment of the consumer that comes in in a very accusatory manner. You're always trying to rip me off. You're trying to make money off my back. So I'm going to bring in my own parts. And I'm going to try and control the situation. And we just have to learn to stand there and say, I opened up a business to make a profit. I don't get an hourly wage here. This is our policy at the shop in order for us to be profitable and pay our employees. If you're not okay with that, sir, then I guess you're going to have to find another location and to stand there professionally. And all of a sudden that person's like, now they're embarrassed. Our goal is not to embarrass that person, but now they're all of a sudden quiet because you've just called them out. I've actually suggested this to one shop owner. He hasn't, he hasn't done it yet because I think he's too nervous, but he has somebody really beat him up over the fact that he was making a profit. And what I told him, I says, ask the customer if he's a communist because he knows the guy isn't. He knows the guy isn't, right? The guy is right wing as they come. I said, so you're not a communist. So, oh, um, so you believe in private enterprise. You believe in profit. But apparently, when it's at your expense, you don't believe I should make a profit. I mean, this is a role play that I work with my clients. If they get this, never happened real life with a customer, and chances are it never will. But the whole idea is that sometimes we have to vent. I love where we started. I love where we're ending. And it doesn't mean that we have to end. But listen, do me a favor. Please come back. Let's do the five fundamentals. Even if we do the five fundamentals, I know that we'll do so many other things. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It'll end up becoming 10 fundamentals by the time we're done. And we have to remind everybody, Carm, because this is what got me engaged with you back in 2014. Learn one thing. Listen, learn just one thing. You know what was the greatest quote I could have ever come up with? And it was my biggest focus is to what's the one big thing that people can take away and actually write it down and do something about it. And because people like you have been so forthcoming to come on the podcast and to share your passion for helping people, the podcasts today end up with dozens of things that really click and can help people with. But yes, but I still think it's a great rule. Listen to learn just one thing, Murray, because it's tough to come away. I do this in conferences. I come away with 25 things that I want to get done. And then three months later, I look at that tablet again and I say, look at what did I really do? Too many things. Yeah. The reason why I brought it up, Carms, and it was very deliberate is because you used to push it a lot. And then I noticed it kind of was more in the background. And I think a few of us other coaches reminded you a few weeks ago to bring it back again. But I want to remind the listener is, is some learners, the way some people learn is they feel like they have to remember everything. They feel like they have to remember everything that we talked about. And what I want to encourage people to do is listen for the one thing that really resonated with you that got your imagination, that you know you can do right away and do that. And don't worry about the rest. Because what will happen is, is this podcast is available to listen to again. We are available to talk about these topics again, but relax. Carmen, you're a big advocate of reading. I've read since I was little. A lot of industry people are not readers. They struggled with reading. We've talked about dyslexia in our industry, right? And the challenges of that. And how audiobooks are just 
really the great tool for a lot of people who don't like to read. But here's what I've learned from a couple of my friends that are technician turned owner. One's actually turned into a coach. I said, hey, I, you know, I really need you to read these books and I had homework and all that kind of stuff. And I, through the conversation, I understood that he thought he had to remember everything he was reading. I said, no, that's not how, no. He says, what? He says, you just read for fun. I said, yeah. I said, and I trust my brain to remember the few things that I need out of that book. It kind of opened his eyes to reading is now fun because you don't have to memorize the book for a test. Now, turning 64 this year, that little mechanism of retention is, is getting a little rough, but I still believe in that philosophy is your brain, trust your brain. It will remember the key things that you need. Your brain will put together different things that you've read and bring you solutions. And you'll wonder, your employees will even ask you some days, how did you figure that out? It's because you piece some stuff together. Let me share with the audience a little trick that I learned from an, an author on how to learn important things from, from a book. In the front couple of pages of the book, they're blank typically. They're blank. And so as you're reading the book and you say, oh, my God, that is powerful. That, that would be one of my one things from this chapter or even a one thing from the book. And you go to the front, you take a pen, you write down the page number and those three or four words that you really want to remember. And you may surprise yourself. You may end up having 25 or 30 things from that particular book. But here's the beauty. The beauty of it is, is that you say, where did I read that? What was the big takeaway? So you can fan through it, look for highlights, looks for notes in the chapter, or you open the book and you just look at the front couple of pages and you scan down, I'll put a star or I'll do something. And I'll say, so the entire essence of the book is in the first two pages that I hand wrote and made myself, hey, don't, this was so powerful. It was so big. You got to remember that. Then I could back, go back in the book and find that little section and reread a chapter or two or a page or two. Exactly. You don't have to reread the whole book. Yeah, you don't have to reread the whole book. You take the essence of that book in the first couple of pages. It will take you a little longer to read that book, but post-reading, the value that those notes are incredible. And I do that to every book for the last five years now. But here's an interesting thing, Karma. I love that methodology. I'm actually going to steal that idea as well. Because as I get older, I don't have the retention that I used when I was younger. So I think that's great. And I do read paper books. However, when I travel, I have a lot of e-books. So anybody young listening to this podcast that knows how to do this in an e-reader, tell me how I can actually annotate or do notes or do stuff in the e-readers. Like I use Kobo as my primary reader. But anybody listening that knows how to do it, there's got to be tech out there to help us older guys with the e-books as well to do what you just talked about. To your point about people say, well, I want to listen to an audio book, a podcast like we do in depth with so many of our topics, such great things, anywhere from a half to an hour long. This one is going to be a little long, but it was a great episode. I, I enjoyed this so much. The point is, is that like an audio book, podcasts hit these, bam, they hit these particular topics. You know, you know, going in what you're listening to, you don't have to invest hours in listening to an audio book. This was just like too much fun. Wow. Murray Voth onboarding is our topic. You would think that they would know that is the subtitle for this. RPMtraining.net. Murray Voth at RPMtraining.net. My friend, thank you so much. We're going to do five fundamentals, hopefully within the next month or two. So uh, come back, please. Great. Thanks. Take care, man. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time. 